You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'll be your host today for an episode uh, with the author Michael Benson. Uh, Michael, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so, uh, Michael Benson, I'm a writer and a visual artist and a filmmaker. Um, and most important for this conversation, you are the author of the new book, Space Odyssey. Uh, it has a very shiny cover. You can see it's reflecting the light a little bit. Uh, subtitle, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. Um, it's a really enjoyable book. Um, thank you so much for coming yeah. on to discuss it. Uh, it is, Thanks. I'd say this is like definitive, <laughs> like everything you want to know about the filming of uh, the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey um, is in- included here. And um, I learned a lot uh, by reading it. Um, why don't we start by talking about what drew you to the topic to begin with? By the way, before I do that, I'd like to say it wasn't intended to be definitive, um, but I, it sort of ran, the project ran away with me. Or, or perhaps the film ran away with me in the sense that I was, I was discovering so much interesting material that um, the book got longer than the original intended length. Mm-hmm. Now, as, as for what drew, drew me to the topic, I've been fascinated by 2001 since I was you know, six years old, which is when my mom took me to see it in the year 68. You know, uh, it's a 50-year-old film now. Um, and um, I was just so staggered by that film. Of course, at age six, your sensors are kind of wide open. Sensors. Your senses. Um, and uh, uh, I was staggered by it. As I said, I was floored by it. And it was so intriguing to me. And then I saw it many times since then. And I always thought I should really revisit this and uh, try to find out how they made it and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I my first encounter with it was through the book. I had read um, Childhood Childhood's End. Um, as like like a um, pick your own book for a class assignment and write an essay about it kind of thing. And I remember liking that, and I was like, oh, let's try his next one, 2001. And um, so I was like 14. And I remember um, liking the book a lot more than the movie at that, at that age and thinking that the movie, you know, left out a lot of stuff <laughs> and uh, wasn't wasn't as good. And then I, I went on, I read most of the sequels that, that Clark wrote after that, but those, those are not quite as good. Um, Okay, so why don't we start with talking about, like, where, who Kubrick and Clark were and how they met in the mid-60s. Sure. Well, so Kubrick had done a number of films, including Spartacus, which he did not really as the person in complete command of it. He had been hired by Kirk Douglas, who was the producer, to do this big-budget Hollywood film, Um uh, after that, he did uh, Dr. Strangelove. Actually, he did Lolita and Dr. Strangelove, um, two black and white, relatively low-budget films that were, you know, that did very well, especially Dr. Strangelove was a huge hit, Cold War satire, black humor-infused Cold War satire. Um, that put him, Spart- the combination of Spartacus, which showed that he could hold down a big-budget Hollywood film, and it was hugely successful, lots of Oscars, big box office. That, plus the fact that he could do uh, you know, something like Strange Love, which was also commercially successful and critically successful, those two projects, above all others, uh, created conditions allowing MGM to green light a very ambitious, very expensive science fiction uh, epic film. 
As for as for Clark, Clark, as you mentioned, with you know, you had read Childhood's End. So he was a leading science fiction author of the golden age of science fiction. Um, there was the so-called Big Three: Robert Heinlein, Arthur Clarke, and Isaac Asimov. He was obviously one of them. Um, apart from Childhood's End, he wrote many, many brilliant short stories, including one called The Sentinel, which they ended up basing 2001 partly on. Um, and one thing about Arthur that was not that is you know, not as well remembered today is that he was also a leading proponent and advocate within nonfiction essays and books of human expansion off the Earth. So he really belongs in the history of the space age as well as the history of science fiction as a leading advocate, kind of propagandist in a good sense for human expansion off the Earth. Right. And isn't he like credited with kind of coming up with the idea of like geosynchronous satellite orbit or, or something like that? He received some of the credit. Now, those ideas had been in circulation, but he synthesized them admirably in a in a piece he wrote and submitted to an obscure British journal called Wireless World in 1945, you know, the year of the end of the Second World War. Um, we knew about the V2, but he didn't think, I mean, the V2 rocket was the German rocket, Werner von Braun's vengeance weapon, you know, which was used to bombard the Brits, basically, uh, but also um, advancing Allied forces in Western Europe during the very end of the Second World War. So th that rocket was um, powerful and clearly indicated that we, you know, spaceflight was achievable with some more development. Um, Clark, and also the idea of geostationary orbit had been out there. It had been, for example, in a series of short stories uh, called Venus Prime. I forget the name of that author, but that was science fiction. You know, the idea of having a geostationary communication satellite between Earth and Venus, interestingly enough, was there, was out there. Clark synthesized a whole series of ideas and proposed in his Wireless World article in 1945 that geostationary satellite, geostationary space stations could be used for telecommunications. He said space stations because, as he explained to me, because I got to know Arthur, he said that he didn't think, he thought that somebody would have to be up there to change the vacuum tubes. <laughs> this is, this is pre-transistor. You know, so but in, in any case, he did synthesize these ideas in a, you know, in a very creative way, published that paper, suggested geostationary orbit as a great place for telecommunications. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. It was certainly it focused a lot of minds and it pulled together, as I said, all these ideas. So, yes, he did. He does have a place in the history of technology, not just science fiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the the origin of the film seems to be that um Kubrick wanted to make a serious science fiction film. Like there had never, there had been a couple like The Day the Earth Stood Still, but most of them had been like B movie, um, you know, kind of cheap fare. And then he right. wanted to like make a serious, ambitious film. And and then he sought out Clark um, to, well, to collaborate. In, in his first, yes, yes, in his first letter to Clark, which was March thirty first, nineteen sixty four. My, my second birthday, as it <laughs> happened, um, he proposed that they meet and, and discuss the possibility of doing the first good science fiction movie, the first truly good science fiction movie, in quotes. Um, so uh, it was really about quality. I mean, he, he had in mind that the genre had been badly served by film. Um, you know, I have a quote in my book that he said to Tony Frewin, his assistant, you know, cinema has let science fiction down. That was his observation. 
he thought that the true, the first truly excellent science fiction movie was within his grasp, and that was the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a little bit more about their their personalities? Um, and sure. we can talk, we can go forward in time a little bit. I mean, um, these are it's a sympathetic portrayal of both, but you you show some of their warts <laughs> along with them. Um, I mean, Kubrick seems like in some way. You know, the ultimate perfectionist, um, maybe megalomaniacal would be too much, but if he wants something, he's gonna get it no matter, no matter what it takes. Um, Clark is, he's older, um, he's more established in his career, um, and he has this kind of, uh, he has a very serious side, but then he has this kind of secret life, semi-secret life, um, in, um, uh, what became known as Sri Lanka, where he uh, was living as an ex- expatriate, and he, uh, one of his main concerns is that he's uh, running out of money because of his profligate associates. Well, his profligate boyfriend, basically, Mike Wilson, was spending all of his money. <laughs> Everything Arthur earned for almost twenty years went into Mike Wilson's projects, and now they they did, they put that under the umbrella of Clark Wilson Associates which was their joint project, which was making films, interestingly enough, in Sri Lanka. So before Kubrick contacted Clark, he had already, he, Clark, had already produced several films that Mike Wilson directed. He was in film, but he was in film in a lo- on a local level in Ceylon, which is what Sri Lanka used to be called. So, yeah, and, and then everything he earned, as I said, went, <laughs> went to those projects. And so there was, a, there was a financial strain on him throughout the production of 2001. Now, both of them were brilliant guys. And as I said in my book, really, you know, they, their meeting was a, was a perfect meeting of, of content meeting ability in a certain way and vice versa. So Kubrick knew how to make films. He was at the top of his game as a filmmaker, you know, and he didn't necessarily have command of some of the ideas that, that Clark had been working on for decades, you know, concerning the ultimate fate of the human species, you know, the trajectory from pre-human primate to uh, kind of post-human, which is, by the way, in Dr. Strange, uh, excuse me, in Childhood's End, you know, the, the meaning of that title is that, you know, the human race is shepherded in a way by this alien species through uh, this evolutionary path, which leads to a, the creation, the arrival of a post-human species, very Nietzschean concept. So these are concepts that Clark was, was working with. Um, so that was a perfect match in a way. You know, you had all these ideas, Clark's ideas, meeting the ability to translate them to film. And so their discussions were intense, lengthy, they would go on for eight, ten hours, they would walk all over Manhattan. They, you know, they first met in April 64 in New York City, spent about a year and change in the city discussing how to make this film. Um, and uh, I think very meaningful for both of them, they both acknowledged each other later. There was, you know, there were tensions sometimes between them, but there were tensions during production, there were tensions after. But there was uh, definitely a kind of Mutual admiration society going on there between those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you make the case uh, convincingly that this is like one of the great creative partnerships of of the last century. Um, so, yeah, so you spent a lot of time even before. I think you don't reach the production chapter until about a page one hundred fifty. Like, there's a lot of stuff that happens before they actually get to start shooting. Um, you describe a little bit of that of that period of 
pre-production and conceptualization? Yeah, well, I mean, film is pre-production, production, and post, you know, in the, tr- in the <laughs> traditional, traditional film. But, uh, with 2001, you had pre-production, uh, of, of several phases, really, you know, uh, and then you had production, which was nominally the, uh, shooting with the actors, live action shooting with Kier DeLay and Gary Lockwood playing Bowman and Poole, you know, the two astronauts on the spacecraft heading for Jupiter. Um, but then you had, um, and so that was, that was live action production, but so then they, then they went into post, which normally would be editing together what was cut, mixing sound and releasing it. But this was a highly ambitious science fiction film where they were developing all the effects as they went. And it was all analog effects, not digital. So they had to basically create techniques, you know, that had never been made before and at a level of realism that was demanded. As you said, you know, Kubrick was a perfectionist. He was not going to settle for something that was not utterly believable. Everybody understood that. He had the budget to do that, to achieve that, using traditional photographic means, meaning no CGI. We're way ahead, of, way before CGI. Um, but there was another thing. Um, the spacewalk scenes had to be shot with, you know, with the stuntman in a studio. That was all live action, too. And then also that whole pre the dawn of man sequence was sequence, which starts the film. Twenty minutes of two tribes of man apes, Australopithecus africansis, you know, facing off against each other at the waterhole. And then one of them, you know, the arrival of the monolith and then one of them intuits how to use a heavy thigh bone as a weapon. You know, that whole sequence had also not been solved. Um, there were multiple attempts to create believable costumes that would, you know, people would not see as human beings stuffed into ape suits, you know, and, you know, and I document that all, all that in the book. That was also not finished when they finished live action production at the end of, you know, towards the end of, uh, 66. Um, so all that still had to be done. Um, so actually it's more like a four part structure, <laughs> pre-production, production, and then, you know, live action post-production and then finally editing, mixing and releasing. Mm-hmm. Um, big project. So one of the conflicts between Clark and Kubrick is um, they decided early on to um, produce a novel novelization. Although that word is a little inaccurate because that more implies like you're looking at the finished movie and then writing a book about it. This is like right. they took the script, worked as, or I guess they they kind of created the the novel draft first and then turned yes. that into into the script. So then. Yes. That you know that was Clark. What Clark was mainly working on, and um, as the film uh, was getting into production, um, Clark wanted to sign a contract uh, with a book publisher, and Kubrick was kind of stringing him along um, for right. a long time with uh, before signing off on it. And um, yeah, so that's you know that was my first encounter with it. And there are there are differences. It's very unusual. Like I, I don't know of another case where you had a book being produced of a movie like contemporaneously from an original idea. And then yes. it's just, it's just like a very unusual process. Well, I think that uh, Kubrick correctly understood that Clark had never written a script and that scripts are very clumsy, cumbersome ways of exploring ideas. You know, what you really want to do is to be able to comfortably explore ideas and then develop a script based on what you've developed. Um, and so he proposed to Clark, who was greatly relieved to hear this idea. 
that they do a novel first and develop a script after that. Because Clark knew how to write novels. He didn't know how to write scripts. Okay, so then they worked on a novel draft, and they went they went out. I mean, there were so many pages written that were net, weren't in that final novel you read, which you incorrectly, I would argue, allege is better than the film. <laughs> yeah, I wonder... As a 14-year-old, it was more appealing to me. If I went back to it um, 20 years later, I, I, I'm sure I would have a different, different opinion of it. Anyway, I probably shouldn't be so, uh, you know, that's my opinion, and everybody has their own opinion. And, and any, anyway, I do like the novel. I think, it's, I think it's good, and I think it's useful to read the novel if you're mystified by the film, because you see what they were getting at, you know, because, you know, this, is, this being a prose being a medium where you really have to sort of explain yourself and film being a medium where you can get away with being very opaque to simplify crudely. Mm-hmm. Um, one lens, you know, one helps the other. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. Where, so where were we actually, we were talking about, um, them cooking up the novel yeah. before the film. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it's actually too simple to say, well, they wrote the novel and then they de- developed a script out of it because they were developing that script. They were modifying that script every day during production. And when I say they, I actually mean Kubrick. And his- the Arthur was also, you know, fully in the loop and exploring options and discussing with Kubrick throughout. Um so they modified it as they shot it. One reason they couldn't release the book. One one of two major reasons why Clark couldn't release the book before the film came out was that he didn't know what Kubrick would be doing next, and he didn't want the book to be totally different, you know, from the film. And the second was that Kubrick had very uh, cannily built into his agreement with Clark that he would have to okay the publication of the book. And then, and he Kubrick incautiously had said that they would publish the novel first and then out would come the film. Clark took him at his word. Kubrick had second thoughts about that. Didn't want the story to be out there before the film and, you know, essentially strung Arthur along um, until the film was out. And then, then the novel came out. And by the way, even though Clark was extremely nervous and upset and, even contemplating a lawsuit against Kubrick, which is something I've managed to drill down into the archives enough to determine, uh, which is not hasn't really been out there before. Um, despite all that, and he, he ended up not pursuing that. Um, but despite all that, he did, in the end, have this huge success with the novel. So at one point... Uh, at one point, uh, Kubrick said to him when Clark was really frantically arguing that I need to release, let's release the novel now. He said, it's not, it's never as bad as it seems. I'm, I'm convinced everything will cr- turn out all right in the end, Arthur. And it did for Arthur because he became truly world famous. The novel sold in its, you know, in huge quantities, big, big bestseller. He made tons of money, Arthur, and and he was much more famous than Heinlein and uh, Asimov at the end of the story, mm-hmm. you know, which is probably something that in his heart of hearts he was kind of interested in ha- having happen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yes. uh, so you, you, you note that... Um, that Kubrick was kind of, was very, like a canny operator, and, you know, you have some stuff about how he would negotiate with suppliers and always go, go for the absolute lowest price. So he wasn't just like an artistic genius. He had this, like, very practical side about how to, like, get what, get what he wanted. Yeah, he was producing the film. Now, a produce, he had all these multiple hats. 
he was also basically the cameraman. You know, <laughs> he shot half the film himself. He was on camera half the time. That guy was as hands-on as they get, Kubrick. But he was producing, and he was very aware that he was very aware. Because it would be easy to say, well, he was just cheap. Well, no. I mean, he wanted all the money he got to go to be visible on the screen. He didn't. The reason that he hired actors who were not big budget actors, you know, is he could pay them less, and he knew they were good, you know. But the, that means the budget could go to what you saw on the screen. He didn't know how much the visual effects would cost, you know. Um, so he was very canny, and he did talk everybody down. And he was, uh, you know, he, he he would stick to his guns too. He had, you know, there's a line from. Michael Hare about the north face of Stanley's resolve, the sheer north face <laughs> of Stanley's resolve. You know, when that guy decided something, he was not going to back down. You know, when he was really firm on something, he was as firm as granite, you know. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Dawn of Man sequence, uh, which sure. opens the movie. Can you uh, so the development of that is pretty amazing and what they were able to achieve through the makeup and the prosthetics uh, is pretty remarkable. Um, can you can you detail some of that process? Yeah, no, that that is almost like a separate, that could be a separate book, this epic struggle to produce these believable man-apes for Stanley Kubrick between uh, Stuart Freeborn, the makeup genius. I mean, I have no hesitation calling that guy a genius. He What he pulled out of the, the hat when it came to costumes for the man ape sequence, the Dawn of Man sequence was absolutely incredible, and I detailed it. And you know, I had the benefit of getting uh, interviews conducted with Stuart Freeborn before he died. I mean, obviously before he died, but I mean, he died a long time ago. He died in, uh, I think it was the early early knots, and I didn't have a chance to talk to him. Um, but I benefited from interviews that had been conducted with him, including uh, by Cinefix magazine and Don Shea is the guy who publisher of Cinefix and he sent me these unedited transcripts of Freeborn and Freeborn was working with Dan Richter an American mime who um, you know came on in the middle of the struggle to try to figure out how to realize the Don of Man sequence so uh, Freeborn had already done several types of costumes which Kubrick shot down each one you know first he did man ape suits Kubrick shot it down as looking too artificial then he did Neanderthals, you know, which are later in the timeline of human evolution and therefore are basically shaggy but basically naked proto-humans. But then there was the problem of genitalia, you know, seeing the genitalia on the screen. So then they had to go back to the manage. Okay. So then finally, and they didn't know if they were going to shoot in Africa or in the deserts of Spain or on location or were they going to try it in the studio. And that's another whole thing, you know, where they did front projection they sent a team to Southwest Africa, to Namibia, to take, to photograph desert landscapes, which were seamlessly incorporated into sets built at MGM Borham Wood, north of London. Because the film was shot, you know, the film was produced just north of London in Borham Wood. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I rewatched the movie yesterday in preparation for this, and it's astonishing that none of that was filmed like on location, it was all this front projection technique and and sets, and it's totally believable. Yeah, yeah. So Stuart Freeborn, uh, well, I should say Dan Richter. What Dan Richter brought to this, the conversation was this um, uh, kind of intuitive genius. Another genius. These are two geniuses, really. Um, you know, Freeborn and, and Richter. 
Richter knew how, had studied animals his whole life, been very interested in animal movement. He quickly established how he studied apes in the London Zoo, uh, including the guy, the gorilla, most famous uh, gorilla in, in British history, in UK history, which is this huge animal that was there for 20 years or something in, in the zoo, and determined how to um, recreate large ape, you know, upper body movements. So it was a chest first way of moving, you know, but then there was a problem with what to do with these big human legs, you know, which are hard to disguise and make look like, like they're, you know, from an earlier species. And then he, Kubrick in his, you know, his own, with his own uh, high intelligence, um, gave Richter a 16 millimeter film camera made sure he learned how to use it and sent him off to the monkey house in the London Zoo to film apes. And also, you know, he, he learned how to film in slow motion. So at one point when he realized he wasn't learning anything more about upper, you know, about, about simian body movements from the great apes and the gorilla, he went to look at the um, gibbons, an Asian, you know, ape species, which, you know, typically swings on vines in the jungle, but also runs down to the jungle floor and runs across the jungle floor, right? Uh, and he filmed some gibbons in slow motion running across the floor of their, you know, big cage in London and realized that they had this type of body, you know, motion as they ran, which he could borrow from for the lower body motions of his manates. And this is probably too much information, but the entire story of how they put that Manny, you know, the Dawn of Man sequence together, it really, you know, as I said, it could be a separate book almost. It was so interesting, and there was so much commitment to accuracy. They studied Lewis Leakey's work. They studied um, Jane Goodall, the films made of Jane Goodall working with apes, man apes. You know, they were in, very influenced by the paleo paleoanthropological research done up until that period. They looked, they read the scientific papers, you know, this was really science fiction at its finest in a way, um, because science fiction, hard science fiction is about not violating what we've learned, uh, from science and, and then using that to project. And you can project forward into the future or you can project back into the past. And this was a brilliant example of the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, HAL 9000, and this is also relates to a piece that you published in the New York Times um, a couple weeks ago uh, called What 2001 Got Right. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, what is, yeah, where did, where did this idea come from to have this, uh, you know, super intelligent uh, computer kind of be one of the main characters? Well, that evolved, like, like many things in the shooting, in the film, not just the shooting, in the pre-production, production, post it evolved. So the original idea was to have a kind of robot, a, you know, not particularly intelligent robot, kind of clumsily walking around the spaceship. Um, that you know, that, and that is in some ways in, in debt to Asimov, you know, his iRobot series of, of books. That became a mainframe computer called Athena. Um, Athena being the goddess who helped Odysseus out of many a, a tight spot, you know, in the in the Odyssey. Um, and her role was indeterminate. You know, her intelligence level wasn't it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear. And then Athena gradually became Hal uh, as the team, uh, both Kubrick and Clark and their people, you know, Roger Karras, some other people, um, were interfacing with leading American and also British technology firms. 
So Kubrick himself connected with Marvin Minsky, co-founder of MIT's Artificial Intelligence Lab, and had intensive consultations with him about where our AI might be in the year 2001. Um, and then they also had input from IBM, you know, and, and the design bureau of IBM, which I say in my book is, you know, comparable in its cultural, you know, weight to the Apple design bureau today. And it was run by Elliot Noyce, you know, the, he's a very famous designer. Um, he designed the Selectric typewriter, but he also designed the IBM logo. Um, and, and Noyce and he, his group suggested to, to uh, Kubrick that um, a computer of that level of sophistication in the year 2001 might be a computer that you go inside of. You can go into the, you know, uh, into the brain of effectively rather than a computer that you're always outside of and then interfacing with in that way. Right. And that's, um, that's the image that appears on the cover of the book is yes. inside the brain yeah. room. That's right. And, and Kubrick uh, was having a bad day that day when he got this letter suggesting this. And he said, this is completely useless. This is a total waste of time. You know, um, I think we're just wasting time with these people, IBM. Why didn't they let us tell us how we can interface with the computer? You know, he was, he lost his cool a little bit. Um, fairly rare for him. Um, and then he obviously thought it over over the weekend. And there were drawings, by the way, in the proposal from IBM of these guys floating in a brain room of a computer. And he obviously thought it, thought it over, probably talked to Clark about it, and they realized there are dramatic possibilities there, you know, in having, <laughs> having a human being in the brain of the computer. And then that gradually developed... Uh, as they discussed, you know, ways of upping the drama during the trip to Jupiter, uh, Hal became more and more irrational. And then in the end, Hal, of course, you know, if you see in the film, kills off the whole entire crew except for Bowman, producing this spike in drama and then that fantastic scene, you know, where Bowman deprograms Hal. Um, stop, Dave, I can feel it. My mind is going. You know, that's Steve. Um that developed after a lot of backstory. Um, yes, yeah, so let, let's talk a little, little bit about um, the piece you wrote for the Times. How do you see this this prediction from fifty years ago of what artificial intelligence would be lining up with how how technology has actually advanced? Well, clearly AI is a front burner issue now. I mean, you know, especially now with Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, some of these allegations about AI being deployed for manipulation, purposes of manipulation. Um, now, I, I think actually when it comes to Cambridge Analytica, they probably didn't have that much AI expertise. But you can see it's coming. And the Chinese are developing AI with facial recognition algorithms and so forth, you know, as they try to, you know, keep a, a lid on their billion and a half population. So there, there are reasons to be really worried about AI. How that connects to Hal, I mean, Hal is a, a logical cautionary tale 50 years later. You know, he runs amok, kills off the crew, has to be deprogrammed forcibly, you know. But interestingly, um, late in the, in the story of my writing this book, um, I stumbled on an archived uh, actually, at archive.org, it's a fantastic site. It archives mm -hmm. all kinds of material. I stumbled on an archived radio interview from a San Francisco radio station in in April '68, which was you know the month 2001 came out, and it was an interview between Arthur Clarke and a San Francisco radio station. And the interviewer said, "Do you think we're being dehumanized by technology?" 
And and Clark said, without skipping a beat, he said, uh, I think we're being superhumanized by it. I, I see a cat in the frame. Yeah, she, she enjoys... It's a black cat arriving in the frame. Yeah, she enjoys uh, making cameo appearances during these recordings. <laughs> um, he said, I think... I think it's superhumanizing us. And then he said something quite interesting. He said, um, you know, everybody is entitled to their own opinion about 2001 and none of them are, are wrong. But he said in his view, um, Bowman's victory over Hal could prove to be a Pyrrhic victory. And I thought that was, you know, typically smart and provocative and thought, you know, thought provoking. And I think he's probably right. Um, it is, you know, as you know, there are a lot of people out there warning about what might happen when AI becomes self-improving. And uh, speaking of cats, I think it was Elon Musk who said we might end up being house cats, you know, lounging around uh, as the <laughs> AI does the AI does his thing or its thing. So. Well, yeah, the, the use of that specific word superhuman uh, gets us back to the uh, Nietzsche quote of, yes. you know, of humanity becoming the, the Ubermensch. And it maybe and we, we're transitioning towards the end of the film, in which humanity seems to um, evolve into another plane. But I, I had never thought before that, um, you know, maybe maybe the Ubermensch is is the thing we created, the uh, the artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly, exactly. By the way, Ubermensch literally translated means beyond man. Doesn't mean Superman. Mm. It means beyond man. And. Um, yeah, I think that that's right. I think that uh, what Clark was doing there is presenting an alternative ending, you know, an alternative way of looking at the story. In the actual story, it's a human astronaut that's reborn, becomes this star child, you know, um, which is kind of in keeping also with childhood's end. And uh, and and by the way, I argue in the book that um, uh, the kind of the the, for, the father of this. Image um, story and text story of the book is a Russian spaceflight theorist and scientist named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who's given who's widely credited as being the father of spaceflight. Um, and he wrote in the early uh, 20th century, "Earth is the cradle of the mind, but humanity cannot remain in its cradle forever." Um, and that that's a kind of epic pronouncement that led to arguably, you know, paved the way for actual space flight and Yuri Gagarin and Neil Armstrong on the moon and so forth. It's the programmatic utopian pronouncement. We must grow out of our cradle. And Childhood's End, by the way, the title Childhood's End makes an oblique reference to Tsiolkovsky's pronouncement. And the star child at the end of 2001 is a, a literalization of that idea of leaving the cradle, you know, um, but you're right. I mean, it, it is also possible, and, and I had a chance to talk with Arthur about some of these ideas myself. It's also quite possible that we are simply going to be superseded by uh, a descendant, uh, you know, a species that's, that follows us that is actually more machine than organic, mm -hmm. more machine than biological. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk about the ending. So uh, Bowman pilots uh, the one of the pods into uh, the floating monolith. And, uh, and this is when it kind of all goes crazy. Uh, can you talk about um, how they developed this idea and then how they implement, how they practically implemented the, the special effects? Well, yeah, that is actually one place where the visual effects really uh, become, you know, they're at their most innovative. Um, 
the the Stargate sequence, which is what we're talking about, Stargate being this wormhole to other spaces and times in the universe, uh, originated in uh, Kubrick's fascination with a CBC documentary, Canadian broadcast company, um, a documentary called Universe, which came out in, I think it was 60 or 61, and it was black and white. Uh, but the visual effects people behind it, led by a guy named Wally Gentleman, um, worked out a way, you know, again, we're way pre-CGI. Everything is analog. Everything has to be filmed with lenses in real time and so forth. They figured out a way to use tanks of paint thinner into which they dropped paints and inks um, and filmed, that, filmed this with a macro lens at a high frame rate to make slow motion uh, the effect of nebulae opening in space, you know, nebulae blossoming in space and, and star clusters expanding and galaxies morphing and so on. So they did this in an analog fashion in black and white in that film. Kubrick was really excited by it because, you know, he'd watched many, many, many movies with really cheesy visual effects. This was done with a hell of a lot more sophistication. And uh, he holly, hired Wally Gentleman, and he, but he himself, before hiring Wally, um, who only lasted on the film a year and a half because they had personality conflicts, before any of that, um, Kubrick rented an abandoned brazier factory in, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and used it to film visual effects now in color using inks and paints in paint thinner at a high frame rate, just as I said, that was the, and, and that material, a lot, you know, a good part of it, probably a small part of it when you consider how much he shot, but a good part of the Stargate sequence, about one third is that material that, that Kubrick himself shot in New York city in 65. But then he thought, well, later on when they were in London and working on the film and in post-production, he challenged his visual effects people to come up with other ideas that could augment it. And so you have Doug Trumbull um, uh, innovating and expanding on a technique called slit scan that had already been developed in L.A. by George Whitney, a visual effects pioneer, um, and introducing this kind of hurtling forward motion um, using the slit scan technique, which resulted in those corridors of light, scintillating light, you know, and this, this sense of vaulting through space and time. That was Doug Trumbull's great innovation. And then there were other techniques used in there. Um, and then, so the, the, I remember when I first saw this movie, uh, the, what happens after the Stargate sequence was when I was like, what the hell is going on here? He ends up in a, uh, Bowman ends up, or his pod ends up in a, um, a French hotel room, and then he quickly ages, and then he is seemingly reborn and returns to Earth as this, uh, Star Child. How did they? What, do you know where this idea came from, and why did they, like, why did they choose like a French hotel room as opposed to yeah, something else? I can tell you. Um, well, the idea originated in Arthur and Stanley uh, in their collaboration in New York City in '65, where they knew that there would be some kind of trip sequence. You know, they didn't call it that necessarily, but this this. Um, indoctrination in a way into the mysteries of uh, deep space by the aliens, invisible aliens, as they brought the astronaut into this, you know, through this stargate. Um, and then the question, so I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Clark who came up with this idea of that at the end of all that, the aliens would provide a room to the astronaut so he could kind of have some security and recover from the effects, the impact psychologically of seeing all of this. 
So that was in an early written draft of the novel in 65, that there's, there'd be a room. Okay, so then the question is what kind of room as they were, went into production? And, and they did approach uh, an American company that did floorings because there were all these uh, corporate collaborations in 2001, IBM, et cetera, et cetera. So they approached Armstrong Cork Company, which designed, um, which proposed a very futuristic kind of room. Um, and for a while, it looked like they might be going with that. But then, then it became clear that that might there might be some confusion on the part of the audience that the you know that this was an, a room that the aliens live in, and the astronaut stumbled into an alien environment. So finally, Tony Masters, uh, the you know the production designer, said to Stanley, "Listen, why don't we just do a French period room? We can do that really well here." And, uh, and, you know, and I think, you know, I think that that would be very effective. And then Kubrick thought about it. And, um, and he said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> but by the way, uh, just one last little footnote there. He had proposed in, an, in a draft of the script, um, Kubrick had the idea of a, of a Victorian room. So it simply changed periods, you know. And the idea was that it was a room seen on a TV signal from Earth that the aliens decided, okay, well, you know, he'll probably be comfortable in this kind of environment because we see it in a TV program. The TV program never made it into the film, but the room did. Hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that shows I mean, Kubrick was both um, uh, intensely focused on his vision, but he was also very open to suggestion from yes. his, his collaborators. Um, yes. So... Let, let's skip over post-production and go to the release of the okay. film. And um, it's and the way you describe it, the initial premiere um, of the movie was kind of a disaster. It was a disaster. It was an utter disaster in the sense that the reviews were all negative. A lot of the audience left. We're talking about April 3rd, 1968, at the Lowe's Capitol Theater on Broadway, just north of Times Square. Um, it was an invitation-only crowd of, you know, in entertainment world luminaries, MGM executives, you know, people with the clout to get tickets. Um, they were mostly older people. Christiane Kubrick sketched the scene for me, um, the widow, Chris, you know, Christiane being Stanley's widow, um, and said when she looked around as the lights were going down, she said to herself, a lot of Alta Cockers here. <laughs> you know, Christiane's being German. And Alte Cockers being a phrase that's common to both Yiddish and German, basically meaning old farts. Okay. And, you know, and then people didn't get it. They were walking out. In fact, I also document, I spoke to a guy named James Randy, a.k.a. the Magnificent Randy. Mm -hmm. And he was a magician and escape artist. And he came to that screening with a posse of science fiction writers that included Isaac Asimov. Um, and he remembered... Um, a near audience revolt, you know, before the intermission where um, Kubrick showed um, one too many scenes of, of an astronaut exercising in this wheel-shaped centrifuge set. It's a fantastic set, you know. I mean, there's a magical opening shot of the interior of the Discovery spacecraft where you see the astronaut running in circles upside down, right side up, sideways, yeah. and so on. But Kubrick made the mistake of having that, and that was... The opening shot is Gary Lockwood. And then Kubrick made the mistake. He was having too much fun with his toys, clearly. And he had another scene now with, you know, Keir DeLay as Bowman running in a circle exercising. And that's when 
that's when um, the magnificent Randy started sensing, and not just sensing, I mean, hearing audience discontent. People are saying, okay, okay, you know, next scene, you know, and stuff like that. And even there were even some hisses and so forth. Um, and then um, I also, in the book, document, you know, when the lights went up for the intermission, Randy was sitting right next to the aisle, uh, at the bottom of which, towards the screen, towards the front of the theater, Kubrick and Clark had been sitting. And he saw Kubrick and Clark watch, walking silently up the aisle during the intermission with Kubrick lost in thought and tears of humiliation on Clark's face. And Clark left in the intermission along with a lot, you know, a big percentage of you know, some percentage of the audience. Mm-hmm. So it was a disaster. Um, and, uh, and then that night, uh, Kubrick and the, the Kubricks had hosted a reception uh, in a hotel in New York City. It was supposed to be a kind of victory lap, you know, celebration. And it, it was more like a wake. And um, Kubrick was extremely upset. And, you know, at the end, um, when, when everybody had left, Christian told me that he was, you know, pacing the room and saying, what am I going to do? They hated it. What am I going to do? He was losing his voice from too much, you know, his chain smoking cigarettes and the stress and the, the stress of it caused him to lose his voice and it looked like it was going to, and by the way, the MGM executives thought this is a potentially studio destroying disaster. Okay. We know it didn't turn out that way. Um, it ended up by the way, being the highest grossing film of 1968. Um, and the next day there was a line that from the box office stretching down Broadway and that line metaphorically never really disappeared because it was high attendance throughout the year and it was predominantly younger people who went to see it. Um, so there, it was your kind of prototypical late 60s, um, uh, you know, generation gap situation where the older people didn't get the film and the younger people did, you know. But one last thing I would say about this. Um, Kubrick did end up trimming 20 minutes from the film in the next few days after that disastrous premiere. He understood that there were places where, you know, the audience was really – Squirming, which is the frame phrase used by Roger Carruth, his VP, Kubrick's VP, said you know, that, that Kubrick was pacing the theater during that premiere, assessing the squirm factor. Mm-hmm. So he trimmed 20 minutes, and then the critics who saw the trim version, it was almost uniformly positive. So there mm-hmm. was definitely a change. There was a there, you know there was a subtle but clear difference uh, in in reaction to. Not not that subtle. I mean, for example, the Boston Globe's uh, reviewer who saw the trim version said, this film is is as exciting as the discovery of a new dimension in life. <laughs> Talk about a rave. Yeah, so, 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 so do you think it was the edits, the 20, removing the 20 minutes that did it, or do you think it's just that the initial people didn't know what the hell they were in for and uh, were were confused <laughs> by the film. I think it was both. I think the edits were key. Um, I think it probably would have been a success anyway because it's such a mind-blowing film, such an innovative piece of work. You know, it's not unusual that you have a game-changing work of art coming out and, and in, there being initial incomprehension and negative assessments. It happened to James Joyce with Ulysses. Uh, it's happened... Th- radically innovative film can be dismissed at the beginning and misunderstood and even made fun of. 
Um, but I do think that those trims were important. And I think, by the way, you know, to jump all the way to the end of, of Kubrick's career, Eyes Wide Shut would have been received better, that's his last feature, if he had trimmed it, and he probably would have trimmed it if he hadn't died of a heart attack, uh, having screened, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what was, what was described as the release cut, you know, the final cut, but which probably would have been trimmed further. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, parts, so he cut these parts of, uh, uh, uh here delay running around the spaceship and, yeah. Other parts that weren't uh, necessary for the uh, understanding of the plot. You know, there's there's a sense of almost like he wants to like have some level of boredom in in the film. Like there's just there's long shots of that are you know the, the outer space shots are beautiful, but nothing's happening. Um, they last <laughs> they last a very long time. You know, the ape thing is is interesting, but at the same time you're like. There's no dialogue here, obviously. There's long portions of the movie with no dialogue. There's repeated shots, uh, you know, uh, cutting back to uh, uh, Bowman in the in the pod, you know, adjusting things, and he does that mm-hmm. over and over again. Like, how did what what did what effect did, did Kubrick want to aim for in having these like long periods where there's really nothing happening? By the way, did you see the film on a big screen or did you see it on a small screen? I saw it on a small screen. Um, to my yeah. T- yeah, to my re- regret, a local um, art theater uh, was showing it on the big screen a couple of years ago and I missed it, um, so I haven't seen it on the big screen. No, the reason I ask that is that um, you know a lot of what's going on requires that big screen, and then you get the the majesty of it and the you know the the, the grace of it you know is visible on a big screen, and you try to watch it even on a you know bigger LCD or something. Um, you know, it's not, it's not going to transmit as well or translate as well. Um, but you know, by the way, James Randi said that, you know, his, his opinion was with that second shot of the astronaut running in circles, the one that Kubrick trimmed, that Kubrick was trying to demonstrate how boring space flight would end up being. And that if, if that was his intention, he succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree with that. I don't think that's, that was the case. I think that they wanted to show a kind of visual majesty um, it is true that, you know, as Kubrick himself put it, you know, this film puts the audience in the unaccustomed position of having to pay attention with their eyes. You know, it was not a text-based film at all. It's a very avant-garde kind of art movie, actually. It happened to be a very big-budget art movie, you know, which was critically, well, that's a mixed story, but which was commercially successful, and as a result slayed the Western as the predominant Hollywood form and introduced the big-budget sci-fi epic spectacular film as the reigning paradigmatic Hollywood form. Kubrick did that with 2001, just something we could talk about. He also um, removed the text-first, text-forward reigning reigning technique used by Hollywood for their big budget films, which by the way, you know, had started with the talkie, you know, pre sound in film, visual storytelling was what was done. And there was the only way to do it. You had intertitles, but basically you had to tell the story in image. And then with the talkie, with the introduction of sound, there was a lot of criticism that films suddenly became stage plays um, that had been filmed, you know, and there was, that was still sort of true. You know, in 68, although that kind of 
conveniently ignores a lot of European avant-garde films, French New Wave, you know, and other films. But in general, there was still that expectation by people going to see Hollywood films that it would be um, there would be a lot of explanation. So nobody was ever, you know, unclear what was going on. It was all spelled out, you know. And um, one of the things that you'll notice when if you look at if you examine works of art that are considered masterpieces in any medium, there's usually some mystery there. There's usually some something unexplained there. There's usually something that leaves people, keeps people thinking. The reason that they're masterpieces is there, there, there's something there that is unexplainable, inexplicable, you know. So it was a kind of calculated risk by Kubrick to not explain the film too much. And I think he brought it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, why are we talking about it 50 years later, you see? Yeah. Um, you are very early on make a, comparison that is obvious and yet it's something I never thought of before I read it, which is that, you know, the word Odyssey is in the title and um, Homer's Odyssey is in its most <laughs> uh, basic form a kind of inspiration for this film. And you note that um, the main character is Dave Bowman and Odysseus uh, had a bow and arrow, which he uh, used to slay uh, um, the suitors to... Um, Penelope is that is that her name? Um, can you and you also as you mentioned Ulysses? Uh, you know, the, there's another great work of art in the 20th century that was based on uh, the Odyssey, and, and that's Joyce's Ulysses. Um, you know, the Odyssey is about returning home, and and that made me think about you know the end of the movie and that he does return. You know, he goes as far out as possible, and yet at the very end he. He returns to Earth. Um, what do you think about, yeah, that like that theme of of the cosmic return <laughs> at the end of the film? I think it was very conscious. Uh, they were studying Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell produced his, you know, truly a uh, superb book studying the, the features common to human myths called "The Hero with a Thousand Faces." Um, which came out in the late fifties, early sixties, um, and 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 you know one one of the things that Joseph Campbell, who Kubrick Kubrick handed Clark a book at one point early on and said, "Read this. This is key." And Campbell broke down uh, one of the ways, one of the dramaturgical structures common to all myths is um, separation, initiation, and return. The hero leaves his home, his or her, usually his home and his people, experiences a kind of initiation somewhere else, a magical realm, and then returns with new knowledge to his people. And that is common in the Odyssey. It's common in Eastern mythologies. It seems to be, you know, baked into our genes somehow. And they were very conscious that, you know, that structure when they designed 2001 A Space Odyssey, they had to, you know, Bowman had to come back. That in Greek, that's in ancient Greek, that's called nostos, the homecoming. You know, nostalgia has the same mm-hmm. etymological root, mm-hmm. coming back to the home. So it was it was conscious, um, and I think it's one reason why. Probably it's one reason why even people who were irritated or exasperated by the, the opacity of that film. Um, came back, saw it again, discussed it, didn't just dismiss it. Because there is that, because we are 
predisposed to sort of to understand and appreciate that type of structure. And I, one last thing about that, George Lucas consciously used uh, Campbell himself right. for Star Wars in a more cartoonish way, comic book way. But I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure he did that in part because he was aware that Kubrick had done that so successfully in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's talk about the film's kind of legacy. So Star Wars is one obvious kind of um, descendant of what Kubrick did. Um, but what uh, there aren't a lot of films I can think of that had the same kind of uh, epic scope and ambition or or as difficult to make. Like I was thinking what other film could, you know, maybe Titanic was as difficult to make with, you know, sinking the, the set in water over and over again. Um, what, do you, what do you see as, as the film's legacy? Well, as I said, I mean, the film vanquished the Western and introduced the Hollywood big-budget uh, science fiction <coughs> spectacular as a, as a par- paradigmatic form. So we've had one after the other after the other. Every summer we get the Hollywood science fiction blockbusters, you know. Um, they're not necessarily, I mean, they're usually not even remotely comparable to 2001. But they do... You know that was the that was the the terrain that he prepared. Kubrick prepared. You know that this this can be a form that can succeed. And and you know many films that followed, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, E.T., you name it, Alien, uh, the Alien series. You know um, have done better than 2001, um, or you know have have been more commercially successful. That doesn't mean that they've been more uh, successful aesthetically or as works of art. And one of the interesting things among these very competitive, um, you know, directors uh, of the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, and now, um, is that everybody's very interestingly and curiously um, humble when they've discussed 2001, and they say, you know, that was the, the masterpiece. So Ridley Scott is not known for his humility, and ne- neither is James Cameron. <laughs> but they acknowledge that Kubrick was the master and, and did this first and did it best. George Lucas has said, as far as he's concerned, you know, that's the greatest science fiction movie, and, you know, Star Wars is not, it's only comparable technically or something, but it's not in its sweep. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. Um, so, you know, and and uh, certainly Spielberg, you know, tips his hat and uh, at Kubrick frequently. So um, it was. Did, a did you have you seen Ready Player One? Not yet. There's an extensive um, Kubrick homage in it. Um, really? Yes, but it's to um, it's to The Shining, and uh, it, I was thinking about it. It was almost as if it made you. It created what it'd be like to play a video game version of The Shining. It's very strange, but like you're in, you're in the the sets are there with you know the car, the carpet is there and the uh, oh, interesting and the the uh, the doors of the elevator open and the blood comes out but and then the characters are running away and you know it, it, it's very wacky but since Kubrick considers Spielberg kind of his his heir so I I I, I guess I was you know this is in some way. We could think it was smiled upon. At the other time, I was like, "This is just totally bizarre that they're sticking, you know, like a, a ten-minute uh, shining sequence into this this um, crazy sci-fi movie." By the way, I'm not sure Kubrick uh, considered Spielberg his heir. Oh, really? 
they were friends, but that doesn't mean that he considered him his heir. And, and in fact, he made skeptical comments. He's he's kind of on, he was on the record making skeptical comments about Schindler's List, saying this is not a film about the Holocaust. This is a film about winning something. You know, all hmm. Holocaust was not about winning. You know, um, and so forth. Um, they were friends, but I don't think he he thought in that way. Um, the, the director that Kubrick admired most, at least as of the early 60s, was Bergman. You know, we're talking art film, you know, art, art filmmakers, film mm-hmm. directors. Um, but uh, I'm not surprised that there's that, you know, uh, homage to Kubrick, because certainly Spielberg uh, acknowledges Kubrick's mastery and has. But there have been many examples, interestingly, of, you know, um, salutes to 2001 or Kubrick in, in subsequent films. I mean, so, for example, in... Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, uh, you have this, you had a kind of the entire excerpt of the man apes dancing around the monolith, and, and it, the monolith becomes a chocolate bar, which is a little bit too obvious as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you have um, uh, the Simpsons, you know, you've got Homer throwing a felt tip marker like a highlighter up in the air, and it becomes a spacecraft, the jump, you know, the match cut epic match cut. And there are a lot of others. Also, Mad Men, you know, you have uh, all kinds of tributes in the Mad Men to 2001 specifically, including an episode called The Monolith. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly highly, um, highly influential film on many levels in design, um, you know, in, um, in, in visual effects for sure. um, You name it. I mean, and and as I said, you know, know, just changing the reigning, paradigmatic form of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're about, we've gone about an hour. Um, I think we're near the okay. end of our time. Is there anything else you want to say about Space Odyssey? Well, no, I just hope that um, people will give it a chance. And, and you know, I, I tried to write a narrative uh, nonfiction book, you know, one that really propels, that pulls people in because of the narrative threads. And um, interestingly enough, um, there was a, uh, one comment that Kubrick himself made to Brian Aldiss when they were working on uh, an early draft for the film that became something Spielberg directed, you know, the one about the... AI? Uh, no, not AI. Um, it's another one, you know, about the robot boy. Um, do you remember the name of that? It's It originated in Aldiss's story, Super Toys Last All Summer Long. Okay. You know, and it was made, it was based on a Kubrick script, and mm-hmm. Spielberg shot it. And the name doesn't, you know, occur to me at this very moment. But it's easy to Google that. But in any case, um, uh, what was my point about that? Yeah, my, so so Kubrick said to Aldis at one point when they were talking about technique, and he said, "When was the last time you saw a movie that had too many good short scenes?" And I thought that's really interesting. That's a very good point. That's a great way to structure a book too. Lots of good short scene, you know. So, so in a way, Kubrick, you know, apart from the subject being 2001 and being Kubrick, that comment influenced how I structured the book. Cool. Yeah, yeah. you. Uh, it's an it's an epic, <laughs> an, an epic retelling of of creating an epic. Um, so, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for coming on. Um, thank you to all of our listeners and viewers, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. 
If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.